Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio and your source for all the latest mental health-related news. The show is about anything related to the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to make sense of media articles about research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness, and along the way trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it without the hype and media distortion of other sources of information and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry. Welcome back, folks. You are at the April, the second edition of Psychiatry Today. Hope no one pranked you too badly yesterday. If you did, try not to let it get you down too much. And uh, I hope that you're feeling well in general, in regardless of any April Fool pranks or not. Uh, and if you are not feeling well mentally or emotionally and you think you might need help, or you've tried to get help and it hasn't worked out, and in any case you're not sure what to do, Please feel free to use me as a resource for mental health-related questions if it pertains to yourself or perhaps someone close to you. And the way you can get in touch with me with your mental health-related questions or your comments about tonight's or any other show that you've listened to previously, send those to me via email. And we're going to change the email address for me. It is now Dr. Scott, that's D-R-S-C-O-T, at americaswebradio.com, A-M-E-R-I-C-A-S-W-E-B-R-A-D-I-O.com. And uh, yes, that's a change in the usual email address for me, for Psychiatry Today. Uh, That's effective today, so... uh, might take a few days for me to get back to the initial responses with the new address, but uh, looking forward to using that. And speaking of which, we are going to have some listener email on tonight's show. And again, the new email address for me, Dr. Scott, that's spelled D-R-S-C-O-T at americaswebradio.com, A-M-E-R-I-C-A-S. W-E-B-R-A-I-D-R-A-D-I-O.com. All right. Now, without further ado, let's get to that listener email. A listener writes, requesting that I include this topic on a subsequent show. And the topic that the listener suggested was socially awkward. And the message simply reads, tips and advice on desensitizing, coping in new environments or new events, new career slash co-workers. A friend is all too often overwhelmed to a point where she is sick. Can you help? Well, I think I can help, and I'm sure going to give it my best shot. So first of all, to the listener who sent in that topic suggestion for the show. Thank you so much for listening. Appreciate that. Now, <clears throat> the topic that is suggested is rather broad. 
And the question includes maybe just one specific detail talking about new environments, especially work and especially dealing with coworkers. Uh, but the topic is uh, fairly broad. So I'm going to try to include as much specific in, uh, suggestions as possible. And uh, hopefully this will be of some help to the listener's friend. Now, <clears throat> first of all, when we're talking about social awkwardness and to the point of being sick in these types of situations, that's strongly suggestive that the person suffers from social anxiety disorder. Uh, now, <clears throat> there's a slight bit of controversy about this diagnosis. There are naysayers who think that this is just organized psychiatry's attempt to medicalize shyness and to justify pharmaceutical companies selling medication to treat these disorders. I assure you nothing could be further from the truth. The social anxiety disorder sufferer, or uh, another term for the diagnosis is social phobia, uh, people with this can be so severely affected by it that they are completely homebound. In fact, this is the extreme case where someone is so dreadfully afraid and panicky about interacting with other people that they literally never leave their home and uh, have everything they need delivered, everything done electronically, never any interpersonal interaction. Now, obviously, that's an extreme case. What's more typical is <clears throat> that people can handle uh, transacting everyday business uh, with strangers, uh, but they're not comfortable at all in crowds, definitely not at all comfortable in parties, especially where there are people who they, they don't know, <clears throat> and uh, things like restaurants, movie theaters, uh, would be places they'd be very afraid. They would never dream of going to a concert or a ball game. And certainly having to start working in a new place with a new work environment and dealing with uh, not only new co-workers but a new job on top of that, that certainly I would expect would be an extremely anxiety-provoking situation for the social phobic. Now, <clears throat> the way you can just kind of quickly diagnose whether someone has a tendency towards social phobia or social anxiety disorder is if a person frequently worries that they're being judged or scrutinized in a negative way by others in social situations or in work-related situations, then most likely they are sufferers of social anxiety disorder. Or another way is if a person is extremely afraid that they will say or do something embarrassing in these situations. <clears throat> now, like most anxiety disorders, social anxiety can be treated successfully with either psychotherapy or counseling or medication, most successfully with a combination of both. And uh, the medications that are used to treat social anxiety disorder are certain antidepressant medications. Zoloft, Paxil, and Effexor are specifically approved for the treatment of social anxiety disorder. Uh, actually, so is Luvox CR. But honestly, <clears throat> many other medications have the same mechanisms 
as most of these. So even if uh, Prozac and uh, Lexapro and Celexa are not specifically approved for social anxiety disorder, and I guess you could say the same thing about Vibrid, uh, they also would be expected to be effective. And the same goes for Effexor's cousins, Pristique, Cymbalta, <clears throat> and Fedsema. Now, as far as what else do I have to suggest besides counseling that would mostly include cognitive behavioral therapy to overcome a person's negative self-perceptions uh, about how they see themselves and in turn how they project a negative self-view onto others, uh, that would be the, the key component of psychotherapy for social anxiety. And then along with the medications I described, what else can be done? Yes, absolutely. Going to give you some practical tips. <clears throat> now, one thing that is very difficult to do, but if a person could bring themselves to start doing it and getting into the habit would help a lot, or things like making eye contact and smiling when interacting with others. Now, this seems like, well, what are you kidding? And that's, you know, if the person was able to do that, they wouldn't be so anxious in the first place. So it's understood that this is very difficult for the person with social anxiety to be able to do, but nonetheless, to start getting in the habit of smiling when greeting and interacting with others and making good eye contact definitely helps to overcome social awkwardness and social anxiety and getting used to interacting with new people. And then another good idea is to practice conversing with people you don't know. Maybe it's someone in line in a store or on a bus or some other similar situation. You're waiting to buy coffee or something. Um, again, it's probably going to take um, every ounce of courage the person has to be able to try doing this initially. But <clears throat> once uh, the person gets in good practice of being able to do this, that definitely reduces the anxiety they have when going into social situations where there are new people or work situations. And uh, again, I realize that these suggestions are pretty much things that could potentially trigger the social anxiety to be worse. You know, conversing with a stranger, looking people directly in the eye, things like that. Again, these are things that are not expected to be easy for the person with this type of anxiety, but things that they should slowly try to work on and uh, try to gradually uh, practice and eventually get better at, and this will help them to eventually overcome this type of anxiety. <clears throat> now, when uh, meeting new people, uh, work on and practice remembering their name, uh, because when you're very, very anxious <clears throat> in meeting new people, that's going to interfere with acquiring and retaining new information like their name. Uh, I find something that's useful is find a way to say their name two or three times in the first 30 seconds to one minute that you have met the person, and this helps you cement the memory of their name, associating it with their face, and makes it easier to remember their name down the road. And, uh, you know, also, again, try to 
shake someone's hand. This goes along with smiling and making a good eye contact. You don't want to grab someone's hand so hard that you hurt them, but uh, uh, you want to strike a balance between, you know, a handshake that's too weak or limp and something that's uh, a death grip. That wouldn't be desirable either. Uh, but again, all of these go a long way to overcoming social awkwardness and fear of meeting new people and anxiety in situations where you're interacting with others. And uh, that definitely should help this person who's having problems uh, along these lines at their new job and their workplace. Now, I have a couple more tips, but it's time to take our first commercial break. So let me get to that when we come back from that. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott on America's Web Radio, and we'll be right back. Come on, follow Snipples to Atlanta's go-to center for breathing easy. Do you suffer from chronic sinus headaches, recurrent sinusitis, facial pain or pressure, and chronic congestion? Well, balloon sinuplasty just could be the cure you're looking for. Follow me and breathe easy. Follow Snipples.com. We treat the problem, not the symptom. Chronic sinus symptoms, gone. This could be the cure you're looking for. Follow me and breathe easy. This proven in-office procedure can have you breathing easy back to work the next day. And it's done under local anesthesia. Get lasting relief, a quick recovery, and start breathing easy again. Follow me and breathe easy. Follow Sniffles.com. Membership. Are you an IHC member? Access to the Institute for Healthcare Consumerism's Breaking News industry trends, expert blogs, and networking with IHC's industry-wide member community. IHC membership puts you at the focal point of the dynamic health and benefit industry, allowing you to join the conversation and collaborate with industry stakeholders and your peers. Your IHC membership includes a subscription to Healthcare Consumerism Solutions Magazine, Healthcare Exchange Solutions Magazine, Annual Publications Healthcare Solutions Superstars, and Healthcare Solutions Outlook a free white paper, and much more. Sign up as a free IHC member or $99 premium IHC member today at www.theihcc.com. That's www.theihcc.com. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio. And the topic on our discussion of mental health issues at the moment is social awkwardness, social anxiety. And a listener suggested the topic out of concern for her friend who is so anxious in her new job and dealing with new people that it actually makes her sick. Well, that's not surprising. Anxiety, after all, definitely causes physical symptoms. And uh, can be pain, musculoskeletal pain, I mean, can be headaches, can be nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Somehow or another, anxiety comes out in the body, so that definitely makes sense. And continuing on my thoughts about you know how this person may be better able to cope, at the core of overcoming social awkwardness or social anxiety of any type is to work on improving 
one's own self-esteem. Because at the core of this is a low sense of self-esteem and therefore the person projects that negative self-view onto others and assumes that others share that negative view of themselves. So whatever it takes to work on your own self-esteem will help you overcome social awkwardness and social anxiety. And again, you know, these things, uh, what, what can help you with that? Well, counseling can help to find out you know, where the lack of self-esteem generates from. Uh, sometimes social phobics can trace their anxiety back to an extremely and severely embarrassing incident that happened in childhood or adolescence. Um, in other cases, uh, the social anxiety sufferer may have been <clears throat> verbally and emotionally abused uh, in their past. Uh, it could be from a parent or um, a significant other. But if someone was continuously and severely belittled and abused and um, basically told that they're nothing, then unfortunately sometimes uh, people start to buy into that and believe that and sort of integrate that negative view of themselves uh, as their own. And um, it takes counseling to get at the root of these issues and to help to overcome them. Uh, <clears throat> Also, taking good care of oneself physically helps to improve your sense of self-esteem. Exercising regularly, eating a good diet, um, you know, anything that helps you feel well physically and emotionally will improve your self-esteem. And stress reduction techniques certainly can be helpful also. Uh, exercise, as we already talked about. Is good for stress reduction. Other things like yoga, meditation, uh, you know, Tai Chi. I mean, anything that helps reduce stress can just help you feel better about yourself in general. Well, um, I hope that helps the listener's friend. And again, thanks very much for writing in and suggesting um, an excellent topic to suggest for the show. And again, I want to remind all of you who are my loyal listeners, who I appreciate so much, of the different email address from now on. For any questions or concerns about your mental health, any comments about tonight's or a previous show, or any other suggestions for future show topics, the email address is now Dr. Scott, spelled D-R-S-C-O-T, at americaswebradio.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-C-A. S-W-E-B-R-A-D-I-O dot com. Next up on tonight's show, you know, I always say in the intro that I strive to help people make sense of articles in the media about psychiatric topics and psychiatric research that may distort the message. And here is an article that is so blatantly irresponsibly wrong and distorts the message and you know a lot of people that I work with in my private practice don't like the fact that I try to discourage people from looking things up online um, you know I feel like people think I'm just being arbitrarily negative but honestly there is too much 
that is irresponsibly wrong, especially when it comes to mental health and psychiatry out there. A lot of myths and misinformation, a lot of negative bias. There's a tremendous amount of anti-psychiatry bias out there. And so rather than potentially be exposed to inaccurate, and unreliable, and misleading sources, I prefer people bring their questions to me and uh, I can usually answer them with the benefit of education and knowledge and experience and training um, and then also direct people to reputable, reliable sources of mental health information, of which I can tell you there are not many. So let's go over this offensive article. It was offensive to me anyway. <clears throat> and as we go through it, uh, I'll tell you what's wrong and distorted about the article and give you the real story. The article is about why do antidepressants increase suicide risk? The fine print at the bottom of prescription drug commercials may provide ample comedic firepower, but underneath the humor lies a chilling reality. In their noble pursuit of making you healthy, prescription drugs put you at risk for a number of terrifying side effects, chief among them being antidepressants, risk for suicide. Okay, so far can't argue with that statement. Uh, it's a little over the top in terms of their presentation. The only thing I can think of that they're talking about in terms of the comedic firepower is that when you listen to the disclaimer, including this very quickly blurted out list of horrific side effects may cause suicide, death, you know, etc., etc. After a fashion, it is somewhat laughable or comedic because it's like, it sounds like this medicine causes all these horrible things. Why in heavens would anyone want to take it? And how could it possibly be proposed as a potential treatment for a devastating disease like depression? Uh, the article goes on to mention how uh, most of the U.S. population is on some kind of prescription, and they say antidepressants, which have been derided as overprescribed, and I guess that's true, are used by more than 10% of the population 12 years and older. Among women in their 40s and 50s, the rate jumps to 25%. Now, I also want to mention something uh, well, I, you know, that part is not overstated and it's probably accurate. As far as the overprescribing of antidepressants, there are reams and reams of research that show that barely a third of people who suffer from depression ever get a full therapeutic trial of medication. So for all the people who say that they feel like antidepressants are overprescribed, the reality is the vast majority of sufferers of depression don't get proper treatment with medication. Let's read on. With all this in mind, it's helpful to understand why we even take antidepressants in the first place. Most antidepressants, the big names like Prozac, Zoloft, and Celexa, are classified as selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. True so far. These drugs work via the hormone serotonin, often referred to as the happiness hormone, to increase the levels in your brain 
by stopping or inhibiting the absorption or reuptake through the brain's various receptors. Okay, this is where I have to stop and say this is a gross oversimplification, at least in a complete misstatement at worst. This is a common myth and misconception. Serotonin reuptake inhibitors do not increase the levels of serotonin in your brain. Depression does not result from a net decrease in levels. And by the way, measuring levels of serotonin in the blood is a waste of your time and money. So if any physician suggests it, politely decline. The way the serotonin reuptake inhibitors work, it is true that they inhibit reuptake through brain receptors, but it's not a question of increasing levels. It's a question of restoring the proper flow of serotonin through certain pathways, but it's a, it's a distortion of the true mechanism of the drugs to say that they increase the levels. Okay, the article goes on to say SSRIs don't cure depression. That's true. They can only treat the symptoms. Again, that's true, which in this case are hormonal imbalances, yes. They're also imperfect. Now, this article quotes someone they think is an expert in the field. I'll read what it says. Dr. Ann Blake Tracy, an expert on the flaws of drugs like Prozac and Zoloft, points out in her book, Prozac, Panacea, or Pandora, that, quote, animal studies demonstrate that in the initial administration, Prozac actually causes the brain to shut down its own production of serotonin, thereby causing a paradoxical effect or opposite effect on the level of serotonin. The brain's chemistry naturally wants to remain balanced, she adds, and any disruption from SSRIs or other medications throws that balance off. Nothing could be further from the truth. This is totally irresponsible uh, for this person to put out information like that and for the article to reiterate it. As a matter of fact, it is depression that disturbs the balance of serotonin in the brain. And what the medications do is they restore the proper balance that has been disturbed by depression. Now, I, I do agree with the article saying, okay, so the drugs can do that, fine. And the result is the symptoms improve, but it's not a cure per se. Now, what results from this volatility, according to uh, the article, is something like a roller coaster effect. A person's mood goes from consistently depressed to temporarily content to all over the place very quickly. That is also untrue. While that may happen when someone takes an antidepressant, including a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, this is clearly not representative of how the drugs work for most people. If someone is having their mood become this volatile, that indicates that something is wrong with their response to the medication, which could be is just the medication is a poor fit for their body and brain chemistry, or perhaps we're not dealing with someone with straightforward depression. Someone with bipolar disorder could potentially react with extremely volatile mood swings to SSRIs, but uh, that represents a case of misdiagnosis, not a malfunction of the medication. All right, we'll go on to debunk more in this article after we come back from our next commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott on America's Web Radio. We'll be right back. 
This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory, ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot Conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. When gardening is part of your life, it brings so much. Healthy eating, the freshest, most local produce, and playing in the dirt. At BonniePlants.com, you'll find all you need to succeed. When you grow Bonnie veggie and herb plants in beds or containers, you'll know where your food comes from. Homegrown veggies and herbs ready for cooking, eating, and enjoying. And you did it. So get growing with Bonnie Plants. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today, the show where you hear all the latest mental health-related news with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio. We're taking apart an irresponsibly written article that I found on the web demonstrating that you cannot rely on a lot of the information you read on the web about psychiatry and psychiatric treatment. It's about antidepressants and the fact that they may, ironically, increase suicide risk. Now, the Food and Drug Administration requires what's called a black box warning on the label or the prescribing information for all antidepressants, including all the SSRIs. Now, why is it called a black box? Simply because the content of the warning um, is surrounded by a black border in the package insert, the label, including uh, the information about the medication, so hence the black box. It states explicitly that they double suicide rates from 2 t- per 1,000 to 4 per 1,000 in children and adolescents. Now, this is again an inaccurate statement by the article. In fact, not a single child or adolescent patient ever committed suicide in terms of the data set, uh, the specific research that generated this black box warning. 
what happened was that there was an increase in suicidal thinking and perhaps behavior, uh, but not a single soul actually committed suicide as a result of side effects of antidepressants. Again, in the studies that led to the warning in the first place. Uh, the article goes on to say, another theory claims that antidepressants aren't directly increasing a person's risk at all. SSRIs endow depressed people with a newfound alertness and proactivity. If someone was suicidal before taking an antidepressant but unmotivated to act on their urge, the antidepressant only facilitated their latent desires. It didn't create them. In both cases, a 2004 study argues that it's within the first nine days of taking antidepressants a person's most at risk for suicidal thoughts or behaviors. Now, in this assertion, there is some truth. However, this has not only been the case with SSRI antidepressants. This has been the case with any and all antidepressants as far back as the earliest ones from the 1950s and 60s. Those were the MAOIs or the monoamine oxidase inhibitors and then the TCAs or the tricyclic antidepressants, uh, both of which preceded the SSRIs, which didn't start coming out until the end of the 1980s. And so what I mean by this is with any type of antidepressant, before someone starts taking the medication, they may be so profoundly depressed and suicidal, but their depression is such that they can't even muster the energy and motivation to carry out the act. In the first 10 days to two weeks even, that someone is on any type of antidepressant, again, not just SSRIs, the person may be vulnerable to becoming more activated physically and having more energy and motivation before the depressed mood starts to improve. And that's the point they're trying to make. So in this very early stage, the person is vulnerable to the medication helping them to actually carry out the act of suicide. Again, because their energy and motivation may improve before their mood improves and before the desire to take their life lifts. But again, this is nothing new with a SSRIs. And uh, uh, we've known about this, again, since the 50s and 60s. Uh, and it should also be noted the article doesn't talk about this, but I will tell you that before the black box warning about increasing suicidal thinking and behavior in children and adolescents appeared on all the prescribing information for antidepressants, the actual rates of suicides themselves among children and adolescents had steadily decreased for the 10 to 15 years previous to those warnings being applied to the prescribing information. As soon as those warnings were added to the prescribing information for antidepressants, the actual rates of suicides among children and adolescents started to increase. This was coincident with a marked decrease 
in the rate of prescribing these drugs to children and adolescents. So in reality, instead of the FDA increasing safety from dangerous side effects of these medications, what happened? Well, I think it's fair to speculate that uh, by seeing the decreased rates of prescribing of the drugs, doctors and patients uh, or their parents were reluctant to prescribe or, or take these medications or have them prescribed to their children, with the result that with less treatment, there was an increase in the rates of suicide. Uh, so <clears throat> nice going, good job on the part of the Food and Drug Administration. As usual, uh, instead of keeping more people safe, needlessly frightening people from potentially life-saving treatments. <clears throat> now, there is uh, more to the article. It says, in pharmacology, this overall effect is known as a paradoxical reaction. A specific medication was intended to treat one symptom but ended up producing it in greater magnitude. Benzodiazepines, common psychoactive drugs used to relax muscles and quiet convulsions, are prone to producing the exact opposite effects. That much is true. Uh, benzodiazepines, those are things like Valium, Ativan, Xanax, Clonopin, Transine, Cirax, etc. They can most often sedate someone, but infrequently you'll see someone have a disinhibiting reaction and they'll in fact get a lot more agitated. But I definitely don't think it's fair to characterize the triggering of suicidal behavior as a paradoxical reaction. Again, the person was suicidal before they took the medication. They just didn't have the motivation and energy to carry out the act. The antidepressant didn't cause them to become suicidal or more suicidal. It just uh, unfortunately enabled them to carry out the act. And that was before their depression improved. Now, <clears throat> they say that uh, while certifiable advances have been made in the 24 years following the study, SSRIs continue to carry the warning. Um, they have to as long as the medication that's designed to realign the juices in our brain that make us happy or depressed can turn against us. The threat of ending it all will always be lurking in the fine print. Okay, so a little overstated drama for effect. Uh, the study they were talking about was a 1990 study that showed 10 to 17-year-olds were compelled to self-harm following administration of Prozac, leading to four of them being hospitalized. These were sufferers of depression and obsessive-compulsive disorder. Um, <clears throat> that age group is prone to self-harm, and, you know, this is a vivid illustration of why no single antidepressant is good for all the patients who take it. Um, it should be taken seriously when given one of these medications to any patient at any age, but especially young people. Uh, Prozac is approved for treatment of depression in young people. Uh, but uh, again, unfortunately, no matter what age group, there can be unexpected negative reactions to any medication. This is why close monitoring when first starting 
any patient at any age on one of these medications is essential. And uh, again, it's very tragic to see results like this, but the only reasonable conclusion is simply that this particular medication uh, caused some severe side effects and uh, resulting in these self-harm behaviors, and it's very sad that it led to hospitalization. But uh, that doesn't mean that some other treatment would not be helpful uh, in reducing their symptoms and alleviating their suffering. Uh, but again, when you see very bad reactions like this, it reminds us of how serious the issue is of giving out these medications and why very close monitoring in the early stages is necessary. So again, folks, um, not to beat a dead horse, but there is so much misleading information out there, a lot of myths and misconceptions. Uh, please don't take everything you read literally. Uh, there is significant inaccuracy and, and distortion and hyperbole out there. Um, and <clears throat> if you're listening to the show, then you value uh, accurate and timely mental health-related information. And, uh, you know, I, I assure you, you can always count on me to give you the real story and give you uh, the real-world experience also of someone who treats patients. Now, let's move on to another subject. Those of you who have adolescent children out there, uh, teenagers, listen up to this one uh, because this has to do with how parental messages that stress no alcohol do get through to teenagers. You might think that they are going to drink regardless of what their parents tell them, and they're going to listen more to their peers and behave more like their peers, but uh, it, it is definitely the case that if you continue to give a firm, consistent message against the use of alcohol, it will have an impact. And <clears throat> this latest survey validates this, and this is not the first time that there's been research to document this. But making it clear to your teen that underage drinking is unacceptable is a highly effective way to reduce the risk that he or she will use alcohol. This was from an online poll that included 663 United States high school students who were asked if their parents approved of underage drinking. Only 8% of the teens who said their parents thought underage drinking was unacceptable were active drinkers. Compare that with 42% among those whose parents believed underage drinking was somewhat unacceptable, somewhat acceptable, or completely acceptable. That is a huge difference, folks, more than fivefold. All right, we'll talk more about the results of that survey after this next commercial break. This is Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. 
Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. This is Dr. Elena George with your health tip of the day. Did you know that allergy season in Georgia is year-round? Beginning in July through November, ragweed is the predominant pollen. But February through May, tree pollen causes allergy symptoms. Grass pollen occurs from mid-May through the beginning of July. If you suffer from daily nasal congestion, sneezing, runny nose, headache, ear clogging, or popping, or a chronic cough, these symptoms may be due to allergy and not infection. You should also think of allergies if there is no fever, chills, or colored mucus. Treatment should include nasal salt water sprays over the counter or antihistamines that do not cause drowsiness. If you have persistent headaches, a decrease in your sense of smell, or nosebleeds, you should see an ear, nose, and throat physician. Please join me on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. for Medicine on Call. This is Dr. Elena George. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay with you, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio, and we're talking about how another survey documents that teens whose parents give them the consistent message that dr- underage drinking is unacceptable drink at far lower rates than teens who get a more equivocal message about unacceptability of drinking or who get a message from their parents that drinking is either somewhat or completely acceptable. Why, I wonder, would any parent let their teen have that message? That's beyond me. But regardless, again, it's only 8% of teens who get that consistently negative message about underage drinking from their parents actually drank, and that compares with 42% for other teens. This shows that teens whose parents tell them that underage drinking is completely unacceptable are more than 80% less likely to drink than teens whose parents give them other messages about underage drinking. Now, this comes to us from the organization Mothers Against Drunk Driving. And the group released the survey on Tuesday as part of the Alcohol Awareness Month and in advance of prom and graduation season when tragically many teens lose their life because of drunk driving. Decades of research show that there is no safe way to teach teens how to drink responsibly. A clear, no-use message is the most effective way for parents to help keep teens safe from the many dangers associated with underage alcohol use. The issue is too important to leave to chance and hope for the best, And it is also irresponsible to simply resign yourself as a parent to the fact, well, no matter what I say, they're going to drink anyway. They're just going to listen to their peers. Absolutely not. Uh, Regardless of how strong their peers influence their behavior, believe me, the message gets through. And don't pay attention to whatever disdainful or dismissive responses they give you either. Um, Mothers Against Drunk Driving has free 30-minute online workshops 
that will be held nationwide on April the 21st as part of the fourth annual Power Talk 21, which is uh, a day for parents to talk to their teens about not drinking until age 21. And again, that takes place on April 21. Before then, Mothers Against Drunk Driving will offer 21 days of underage drinking prevention activities across the country. So they're uh, underway as we speak. Each year, underage drinking results in the deaths of about 4,700 people in the United States. Research shows that teens who don't drink until age 21 are more than 80% less likely to abuse alcohol or become alcohol dependent later in life than those who drink before age 15, 70% less likely to drive drunk later in life than those who drink before age 14, 85% less likely to be involved in an alcohol-related traffic crash later in life than those who drink before age 14, more than 90% less likely to be injured while under the influence of alcohol later in life than those who drink before age 15, and 90% less likely to be in a fight after drinking later in life than those who drink before age 15. All right, so definitely do not have a sense of discouragement and resignation. Continue to give your teen strong, firm, and consistent negative message about underage drinking, especially this prom and graduation season. And uh, you are definitely going to be assured that your message is getting through, no matter how they react to you. Next up on Psychiatry Today tonight, regular and long-time listeners will know that I closely follow all the latest news about the effects of antidepressants in pregnancy, it's a very difficult problem. Women who are pregnant or planning to become pregnant may be vulnerable to depression and they should not be allowed to suffer because it will not only have a negative effect on them, it will have a negative effect on their developing fetus. That's assuming they were able to conceive in the first place. So here comes another article about <clears throat> antidepressant use in pregnant women. And again, uh, this is not nearly the egregious example of distortion uh, of the message that the article we talked about before pertaining to antidepressants and suicide. But this does demonstrate how <clears throat> the media will present an article about medical research in a very unbalanced fashion. And it's important to have the background to be able to filter this information and uh, take from the information what is reasonable, but understand how the message provided by the information uh, may be distorted. I'll explain what I mean as we go along. Now, the article talks about how premature births are linked to antidepressant use in moms. There are more premature babies born these days than there were 20 years ago, and there are more pregnant women taking antidepressants, and researchers recently looked to see if there was a link between the two. Researchers have found 
that taking antidepressants during the third trimester especially increases the risk of a baby born early. Now, they looked at a systematic review and meta-analysis looking for research on the topic of pregnant women using antidepressants and premature births from 1993 through September of 2012. This gets at the heart of whether you can take the message from this article literally or not. That is the methodology, methodology sorry, of the research. A meta-analysis means they didn't do a new study themselves. They just did research on all the previous studies on the issue and then decided how they could compile all the data from all the different studies and uh, do some other statistical analysis on that and draw some conclusions. They used 41 different studies that met their criteria, which is that the studies included pregnant women who were exposed to antidepressants at some point in their pregnancy and compared them to a comparison group and included rates of preterm births. The studies included anywhere from 44 to uh, a million or more participants. All the studies, except for one, considered premature infants as those born before 37 weeks of gestation. One study included babies born before 36 weeks. Babies born prematurely are more likely to be born with health issues and are higher risk for health problems as they grow. They found that women who took antidepressants into their third trimester had up to double the risk of having a baby born early compared with women who did not take antidepressants. There was no increased risk based on mothers taking antidepressants in their first trimester, and while there is a risk in the second trimester, the highest risk is in the third. There could be other arguments that a woman who is depressed may have other behaviors that increase the risk of giving birth prematurely, such as increased smoking, poor nutrition, or increased alcohol consumption. However, the researchers did not feel that these could explain all of the association, and they noted that other studies have found antidepressant use increased the risk for premature births as well. The researchers suggest that pregnant women who are depressed may wish to try psychotherapy or exercise before relying on medication, but noted that a physician has to assess what is best for a pregnant woman on a case-by-case -case basis, depending on how depressed the woman is and what might help. These medications may be necessary in some pregnant women, with severe depression in whom other approaches are inadequate. However, for many others, non-drug treatments such as psychotherapy will help and aren't associated with complications like preterm birth. Now the study, for those of you who are interested, appears in the March 26th edition of the journal PLOS One. My issue with this is the study design. A meta-analysis does not give you the truest picture of really being able to determine whether it is the antidepressant itself that is causing premature birth or other factors. The most important one being, what about maternal depression? 
is it possible that the association between antidepressants and premature birth is simply the fact that the women suffer from depression? I think a better way to make this determination would be to look at women who were assessed for depression and whether they're on antidepressants or not, and then you can compare them, both of those two groups, to a third group that was not depressed. And then you would probably get a truer picture of does depression itself without medication result in an increased risk of premature birth? Um, my guess is that finding would be that it does. And then you compare uh, both of those two groups, the non-depressed, non-medication group with the depressed, non-medication group to the medication group, and you see the differences in the results uh, of premature birth. That would be a truer way to do it than this meta-analysis, which is looking at uh, old data. Now, <clears throat> while it is true that uh, SSRIs as a whole uh, are associated with, on average, a weak early preterm birth, uh, again, we know a lot more and there's a lot more definite data about the negative consequences of maternal depression on the developing fetus than we know about the medications. And another problem with information like this is if women get the message that being on an antidepressant in their third trimester can lead to premature birth, and not only that, but OBGYNs and pediatricians get this message, then what may happen if women are taken off their antidepressant in their third trimester? then they are more vulnerable to developing postpartum depression. This is a setup for it. If you take someone off during their third trimester, uh, I can think of no better recipe if you were trying to induce postpartum depression. Bottom line is there has to be a more balanced way to look at information than the article presents. Well, that's going to have to wrap it up for tonight's show. I hope that you enjoyed this information and found it informative. I certainly enjoyed bringing it to you, and I hope that until we get together again next week, you have a wonderful, stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.